And we had left our previous location. Uh, one of our eight o'clock members was playing tennis. I was corrected at eight o'clock. Uh, I thought they were playing bridge, but they were playing tennis with some Calvary members. And they said, you know, we're going to need a building. And they said, well, we're going to need someone to buy ours. Thus began a friendship with Dave Skelton. And ladies and gentlemen, he has become to me a dear brother and friend in the Lord. We get together about once a month at Jake's and just encourage one another. Uh, we, we got to hang out at the Gospel Coalition this year with, with our wives. It was a wonderful time. And what you're going to see, I believe, in the, in the, we have so much more in common than we have separates us. Because... Baptist tradition is of the Reformation as well as we are. And so, no further ado, let's give a, I think it's quite appropriate, we can clap in church, to give a, a warm Christchurch welcome to Pastor Dave Skelton. Thank you. It's such a privilege to be with you this morning and the friendship that Gene and I share goes back several years and it continues to grow as we get to know each other. I'm looking forward to getting to know you as well and I want to share God's word with you today. Uh, I've entitled the message something to celebrate. This is not just something for us as Baptists to celebrate. This is something that Anglicans and Baptists can celebrate together. So I want to begin and have a little fun with you. Do you have fun now and then? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Companies know how to capitalize on catchphrases. They help identify what they do. They're usually short. They're designed to grab attention. They're usually easy to understand. And most often, they're memorable. Now, the goal behind these, according to one website, is to leave a key message in people's minds so that if they remember nothing else, they remember the brand or the slogan. So here's what I want to do. I want to see if you can remember these. They're, they're rather simple. They've all been on TV, commercials, things like that. I'll begin with the first one, and you just shout it out if you know it. Nike, what is it? Just do it. Right. Okay, let's see if you know this one. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay, two great tastes that taste great together. How about Dollar Shave Club? Nobody know? Anybody use Dollar Shave Club? Shave time, shave money. Here's one you all know. M&Ms. Melts in your mouth, not in your hand. Lay's Potato Chips. Bet you can't eat just one, right? How about Meow Mix? Well, <laughs> okay, no, it's so good, cats ask for it by name. Now, here's some less well-known slogans. Best Buy. Anybody know that one? Try it out before buying it on Amazon. All right? And how about Hot Pockets? Every bite is a different temperature. Uh, now, if you go all the way back in history to the American Revolution, it gave rise to dozens of rallying cries like this one. No taxation without representation. Or you remember this one from Patrick Henry? Give me liberty or give me death. Now, the reason I bring these up is because you probably already know that this year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And out of that came some short slogans, some battle cries, or you might call them brands. And I want to talk to you about those today. But before I want to do, I want to talk to you about the Baptist brand. You know, you might be asking, what in the world is a Baptist church? And what's the difference with an Anglican church? And that's a great question, and it's not easy to answer. I would say, first of all, as a Baptist church, we are evangelical. We belong to a denomination known as the Baptist General Conference. We just changed our name to Converge Worldwide. 
We're also very contemporary in our approach to ministry at the other end of the building, but we're very conservative in our theology. Uh, I've had the privilege of serving at Calvary Baptist here in Avon Lake for 15 years. And I love the church I'm serving. I feel privileged to be here as senior pastor. But in recent years, we have grappled with the idea of changing our name and dropping the Baptist brand. And you might say, well, why in the world would we do that? Well, our mission as a church is to reach people who are not just Baptists. We want to reach people here in Avon Lake and the surrounding suburbs that maybe not go to any church. And a few years ago, there was a fellow who did a survey of uh, people and asked them this question, what comes to your mind when you hear the word Baptist? I'd be interested in taking a survey of what comes to your mind, but I'm kind of scared. But do you know what the number one thing was? Legalism. And here's a few others. Traditional, outdated, boring. Here's another word that came up. They fight all the time. Uh, and there's a couple. No alcohol, no dancing, and no fun. Now we kind of felt like that's not really a good perception for us to have if we're trying to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we decided we're going to change our name. We all got together as a church, and we, we, we decided we're going to change our name to Anchor Church, but we're still going to remain Baptist. Now, what does it mean to be a Baptist church? Well, I want to share with you a little acrostic that might help you understand us a little better. Uh, the, I like alliteration. I like acrostics. The first one in the Baptist name is the, word, the letter B. That stands for the Bible. That's our sole authority. Our first question when we face any decision is, what does the Bible say? <laughs> Secondly, the A in Baptist is the autonomy of each local church. We believe Jesus is the head of our church, not any person, group, or religious organization or denomination. And even though we cooperate and pool our resources for missions, each church is independent and autonomous. We make our own decisions under God's leadership. We own our own assets. The P in Baptist is for the priesthood of every believer. We believe that every member is to be a minister and that every believer has equal and direct access to God through prayer. And this, by the way, plays a role in how I'm dressed today. You notice I'm not wearing a robe. I hope I'm not disrespecting you, but what we do is we do it a little different. If you would come to our end, people just kind of dress any way they want, and so does the staff, and so do the pastors, because we don't want to distinguish ourselves from the members of the church. Now, last week, Gene preached at the other end of the building at our church, and he described why he wears what he wears. He has that black robe and the white robe. The black symbolizes our sin. The white symbolizes Christ's righteousness, right? You do know that, right? Does he need to explain that to you? Okay. Now, in the Baptist church, we think of it differently. We come dressed the way we are, knowing that in Christ we are dressed with his righteousness. So our desire is not to draw attention to each other. It's to focus on Jesus. And that's what you want to do too, right? You don't focus on Gene. You don't want to focus on me. You focus on Jesus. The T in Baptist is tithing. We recognize giving 10% of our income is the minimum standard for giving to God. The I is a little bit controversial and might identify a difference between us. We believe in immersion baptism. We practice baptism by immersion underwater following the pattern that we believe was spelled out in the Bible. And I know this differs from your practices, and we're not saying that we do it better. I understand the value of different views, but we have always believed that baptism is best expressed by believers who are dipped under the water. Now, this has been a point of tension throughout the history of the Protestant church. And uh, some of you may know, you know, some of your ancestors in the past actually drowned some of us. 
because we wanted to baptize people. You're not going to do that to me today, right? Okay. All right. Now, I think one thing, we can all unite in the idea that it's Christ that saves us and not our baptism, right? Okay. The S in baptism is spirit-led living. We believe it's only possible to live the Christian life through the power of the gospel with a spirit living inside of us. And the T is telling others about Jesus. It's not just my responsibility to tell people about Jesus. We all have that privilege and responsibility to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I hope that helps to, so that you can understand us a little bit better. But I want to use one more word for our church that is not often used today. And we don't use it about ourselves very often. I said we're an evangelical church and we're a Baptist church, but we are also a Protestant church. And to say that word immediately reminds us that there are three main divisions in Christianity. There is Catholics and Orthodox and Protestants. And if you are a student of Christian history, you know that there are many different Protestant churches. Thousands, in fact. There are literally hundreds of different Baptist denominations. And while Protestant churches differ among themselves in various ways, all of them trace their heritage back to the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. And this Protestant movement was born on October 31st, 1517, when a Catholic monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And he had no idea that his actions would change the course of history. All he wanted to do was spark a debate about church practices he considered corrupt. But instead, he ignited a fire whose flames burn bright to this day. And it is no exaggeration to say that there is a direct line that stretches from 32607 Electric Boulevard all the way back to the church door in Wittenberg. We are Protestants because we stand with Martin Luther in much of what he said and thought. And all true Protestants trace their origins back to Luther in one way or another. And that includes Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians. That includes Lutherans and Anglicans, right? And the Reformation focused on five slogans or brands known as solas. And the word sola is Latin for only or alone. In the words of the theologian R.C. Sproul, he said, it is no exaggeration to say that the eye of the Reformation tornado was this one little word alone. And as the Reformation spread across Europe, the early reformers coined five Latin phrases that became battle cries for the Protestant Reformation. They summarized the differences between Martin Luther and the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to remind you of what those are I want to re-examine them, and I want to talk to you about the relevance of every single one of them. And by the way, just let me say, the word Protestant carries with it a smaller word, protest. Luther and his followers were called Protestants because they protested against certain abuses in the Catholic Church. You know what? In our day, we still have things we should protest, right? There are things we need to be concerned about. We agree with Luther's points. And we also protest the moral and spiritual and doctrinal decline in many churches across our country and our world. So I just want to stand up here and say that with you, I would proudly say we wear the Protestant brand. We join with reformers and with you in professing the solas of the Reformation. So I want to walk through these together. You know what they are. I've listed them for you. You have an outline if you want to follow along. They are sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and sola de gloria. Or let's not look at the Latin, let's talk about English. 
We believe in Scripture alone. We believe we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Do you agree with that? I want to explain what those mean in the next few moments I have, and I recognize I have a huge challenge here. Gene told me uh, this last week, he told me when we were meeting at Jake's, he said, you know, I needed to do this in less than a half hour. And I've already taken 10 minutes. And, and this morning, he just kind of whispered, he said, that was great stuff in the first service, but then he's kissed me. He said, keep it short and simple. Gotta, okay, all right. So uh, I'm going to try to do this. Some of you might even be wondering why I'm doing this, because your eyes are already glazing over. And my goal today is to show you how these statements come straight from Scripture and they're relevant just as much today as they were in the 16th century. And here's what I want to say to you, and I say this with a, a real heavy heart. I believe we need a new Reformation today. And I would love for you to join with our church in praying that God will make this happen in our churches. We need to return to our roots if we want to see real change happen in our churches and our lives. So are you ready for this? Let's walk through the five real quickly. The first one is Sola Scriptura in Scripture alone. Let me read 2 Timothy 3.16 to you. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Focus on that first word, all. Every single word of Scripture from the first verse in Genesis to the last verse in Revelation is breathed out by God. That's where we get our word inspiration. Scripture is inspired, but it is also inerrant and infallible and authoritative and completely sufficient. The Bible is the only book we need to know God and to know ourselves. Paul says it is useful, and that means it is beneficial. He also tells us in verse 17, he says, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means nothing more is needed. All you need is the Bible to know God and grow in your faith. And so here what I want you to see is the link between learning and living. And this is a great reminder for all of us. We not only need to get the Bible into our heads and into our hearts, but we also need to live it out through our hands and our lives. So just let me say one thing. Here's what we believe as Baptists, you believe as Anglicans. We believe that Scripture is our highest and final authority. Not tradition. Not our politically correct culture. Not our own feelings which fluctuate. Not our political party affiliation. Not even the church itself or the Pope or the Supreme Court or even Donald Trump. I mean, this is really important because this is at the heart of biblical Christianity. The Bible and the Bible alone is the basis for our faith. You know, in 1521, Martin Luther was summoned to appear before the Roman Emperor. He was having to defend what he had taught and written. And here's what he said, and I want you to listen. He said, the works I have written are mine. But unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Can you say amen to that? Now, now, where did Luther get such boldness and confidence? It was because he believed in the Bible and the Bible alone. Listen to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And this conviction is what caused John Wycliffe to translate the Bible into the mother tongue of the people. 
You know, at that time, only Latin translations were available, and most people couldn't read that. They had copies in the churches, and only the priests could teach the text. Several years later, William Tyndale translated the text of the Bible into the language of the people. And when the priest criticized him, here's what Tyndale said. He said, if God spare my life these many years, I will cause a boy that drives a plow to know more of the Bible than you do. Isn't that great? And when challenged by hostile church authorities almost 100 years before the Reformation, John Huss repeatedly answered his opponents with this statement, Show me from Scripture, and I will repent and recant. If you don't show me from Scripture, I can't. Now, needless to say, the Bible alone became the foundational battle cry of the Reformation. And you know what? The question is still the same in our day. What's the final authority for you in your life and in my life? Martin Luther said it clearly. A simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. And when asked to explain why the Reformation spread throughout Europe, Luther simply said, the word did it all. You know, when the godly Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, are you familiar with that name from England? He was asked to defend the Bible. You know what he said? He said, defend the Bible? I would as soon defend a lion. Unchain it and it will defend itself. So if, if you want God to speak to you, you know what you need to do? Open your Bible and start reading it. And that's the foundational truth of the Reformation that we must never forget. We shouldn't be swayed by polls or by politicians. And you know what? I want to say something to you very personally because I know a little bit about your history. I really appreciate you and applaud you for staying faithful to the Bible even though it has cost your congregation dearly. And I pray that you will always stay that way. It's the Bible and the Bible alone that gives us a foundation for our faith. Second one, real quick, is by grace alone, sola gratia. One of my favorite verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Salvation is by grace alone, it's not by our efforts to gain God's acceptance. Do you believe that? This passage and other passages throughout the Bible teach us that salvation is by grace. It is a gift from God. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus. You know, I was uh, reading uh, some comments from Kim Riddlebarger, and he was talking about grace, and he said some words that really caught my attention. He said, When we use the term grace alone, what we mean is that our salvation from the wrath of God, our deliverance from hell is because of something good in God and not because of anything good in us. Stop and think about that for a moment. I mean, something good in God, we would all agree God is good, right? But that second statement, nothing good in us? (laughs) Nothing good in you? I mean, you look good today. I mean, don't you feel good at times? Do you struggle with that statement? If you have trouble with that, you're not alone. In one survey, it was discovered that 84% of evangelical Christians agreed with the statement, God helps those who help themselves. Half of the people said there are other ways to come to God besides Jesus. And a third of the people said, yes to the proposition, all good people go to heaven. Now, let me ask you, is that true? Listen to what the Bible says in Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, 
Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Those words are pretty clear, aren't they? No one who understands. No one who is righteous. No one who seeks God. No one who does good. And unless we misunderstand that, twice Paul says, not even one. Isn't he clear here? By the way, some would say, well, except me. No, there's no exceptions here. There are no exclusions. And there is something in us that just cries out and says, well, no, I am not that bad. But until we understand how bad we are, we're never going to be glad for grace. Grace means that God does absolutely everything. You know, we think that grace means that we do our part and God does his. That's not the way it works. We owe everything to God. And unless God does something for us, we're in big trouble. Now, I know this is not popular. It's never been popular, but this is the heart of salvation. Our salvation depends entirely on God. In fact, even your faith is a gift from God. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, God creates faith in the human heart the same way that he created the world. He found nothing and created something. There's a hymn that we sing in uh, our Baptist churches. It's uh, called Rock of Ages. And the words go like this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You came to church with empty hands, right? To receive the gift of God's great. But you know what? We fight this fact. And we think that we can clean up our lives and then God will accept us. In fact, that's what a lot of people are trying to do. They realize they're sinners. We realize that we're dirty in God's sight because of our sins, so we're trying to clean ourselves up. You know, the other day I saw the strangest thing. Maybe you saw this on TV. Nordstrom's is selling dirty jeans for $425 a pair. Did you see this? Now, I just laughed out loud. This is for guys who haven't worked a day in their lives, but want to make it look like they're hardworking real men. So for $425, you can buy a pair of jeans that look like they have dirt and mud all over them. Did you see the picture? I mean, I would never wear a pair like that. That's crazy, and that's too costly. But there are people out there just like that, trying to work real hard and get themselves cleaned up so that God will accept them. Let me just give you a little illustration. You know, we don't do the robe thing, but, but here's something that I've used as an illustration with our kids in Awana and sometimes with our adults as well. I'm going to put on my black glove. This represents me in God's eyes. Okay? That's my sin. I'm a sinner in God's sight. Even though I've tried to be a good kid, I'm not so good in the eyes of God, right? This represents Jesus Christ. Is Jesus good? He's spotless and sinless. He is righteous. Okay, when God looks at me, he sees my sin. When God looks at his son, he sees righteousness. So, you know, when I put my faith in Jesus, when I clasp my hands with his, what does God see? He sees Jesus, not me. Instead of seeing my sin, he sees his son. And what happens is then he can come into my heart and life and begin to change everything. That's the good news of the gospel, that we are righteous in God's sight for the sake of Jesus Christ. So, there are two options when it comes to salvation. If you want to be saved by your own righteousness and works, then have at it. Go to church every Sunday, get baptized, give your money, live by the golden rule, be a good citizen, give to charity, follow the Ten Commandments, do everything every single day you can to get saved, and you know what? You'll get to the end of your life, stand before Jesus, and you're going to be deeply disappointed. But if you want to be saved by faith, then put your faith in Jesus Christ right now alone, and God will save you fully and completely. That's the good message of the gospel. Now, the third one is through faith alone. Let me read Romans 4, 4, and 5. 
Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, just hang with me. We're coming right now to the heart of the Reformation. The free gift of salvation is received through faith alone. Notice verse 4 points out that when you work, you receive wages. I mean, how would you respond if your boss gave you your next paycheck and said, here's a gift? If you're like me, I'd say, wait a minute, I earned this. I worked for my wages. But the Bible says you cannot work for your acceptance with God. It's only those who know they're ungodly. It's only those who believe in Christ who are justified and their faith is counted as righteousness. Let me ask you, do you know what justification means? In our Baptist circles, I often hear this phrase, it means just as if I've never sinned. And that's true, but it's a lot more than that. And this brings us right to the heart of the difference between Protestants and Roman Catholics. And this is so important for us to understand, not just, uh, not just in our heads, but in our hearts as well. Because Luther said, this, is, this determines whether a church stands or falls. This determines whether a Christian stands or falls. Let me explain this to you. The word justify means to declare righteous, not to make righteous. The term comes from the courtroom in the first century. As a trial drew to a close, the judge, having heard all the evidence, would pronounce the verdict. And to justify meant that a person was declared not guilty in the eyes of the law. Now, there's another way you can look at this term. I mean, most of you have used a computer or a word processor, and you probably know what it means to justify the margins. When you justify the margins, they're straight from top to bottom. So when it comes to justifying someone, it means to make straight something that's crooked. So I want to put these two together. When you trust in Jesus Christ, God declares you not guilty in his sight and straight instead of crooked in his eyes. And this is entirely an act of God when God justifies you. And when we get this in our heart, it changes the outlook of our lives. You know, I already mentioned that this doctrine radically changed Martin Luther's life. Let me just share part of his story. He said, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but this one word, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although I was an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love God. Instead, I hated him and grumbled against him. But I clung to Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day, I pondered it until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sincere mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through the doors of paradise. The whole scripture took on new meaning where before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it filled me with love for God. This passage became to me a gateway into heaven. That was Luther's story. But you know what? It was my story too. It was when I was in college and I was running away from God and rebelling against him, I opened the book of Romans and began reading it. 
And God opened my eyes to realize what it meant to be justified in his eyes. And it changed my life forever. And that doctrine of justification by faith is central to your faith as well. It gives you a righteousness that you own. And that's why, you know, in, in our church, I keep telling people, put your, all your eggs in one basket. Put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Make him the anchor. That's why we're calling ourselves Anchor Church. Make him the anchor for your faith and your life. Paul put it this way in Romans 3.22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now there are two more and I'm through. Here it is. Solus Christus. Because of Christ alone. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What we see here is that Christ died for our sake and he took our place. As our representative, Jesus took our sins collectively on himself. He was our stand-in and our substitute. Isaiah said, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what you do when you take communion. You remind yourself that not only did he take our place, but he took our penalty for our sins. And he did it all so that we could receive his righteousness, so that we could be right in the sight of a holy God. Listen to the way Paul describes this in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And then over in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now here's a helpful mathematical equation that we share at the other end of the building. This is what we believe. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Does that make sense to you? If you add anything to Jesus, you get nothing. But if you trust in Jesus alone, you're going to have heaven as your home and everything else as well. Now there's one last. It's sola de gloria. For the glory of God alone. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You know, during the Middle Ages, there was a clear distinction between the clergy and the laity. But Luther, during the Reformation, got rid of this dividing line. And he argued that all of life is to be lived under the leadership and the lordship of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit to the glory of God the Father. And Luther reinforced the priesthood of all believers and concluded that all work, even the most ordinary, could be done to the glory of God. Listen to his words. How could the devil have led us more effectively astray than by the narrow conception that service to God takes place only in the church and by the works done therein? The whole world could abound with service to the Lord, not only in churches, but also in the home, in the kitchen, the workshop, and the field. You know what he's saying? You can change diapers to the glory of God. You can do dishes or take out the garbage to the glory of God. We live on mission when we fulfill the vocation and calling God has given to us. When we do our work as a way of worship, we glorify him and him alone. You know, one of my favorite sports movies is Rudy. Have you seen Rudy? Just love that movie. And there's a scene in that movie where Rudy is trying to get into Notre Dame. Some of you will remember this. And he's constantly receiving letters of refusal. And so he walks into the school chapel. He's discouraged, distraught, depressed. He's ready to give up. And there sits a priest in front of him. And they begin talking. And the priest senses that there's something wrong. And so he asks Rudy what's going on. And Rudy says, 
I don't understand. I have prayed and prayed and prayed. I've worked hard, but God is not listening to me. He's not answering my prayers. And I'll never forget what the priest said. Do you remember this? He looked at Rudy and said, I don't understand what's going on in your life. I don't understand God's plan for you. But there are two things I do know. There is a God, and I'm not him. Now, I want to give you a newsflash. Life is not about you. You exist for the glory of God. There is a God, and you're not him, and I'm not him. And you are here not to gain popularity or possessions or pleasure. The goal of our life is to give glory to God. Here's what the Westminster Confession says. What's the chief end of men? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So here's the question I want to close with. Are you living for the glory of God? Is he the center of your life? Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege of sharing your word today. I thank you for the message of the gospel that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Help us now to live our lives for your glory alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.